tonight I'd like to talk about the light of love. It seems a rather appropriate talk for this evening since we're now having a number of days of rain and some darkness (laughs) rather than light. (laughs) And I know this has been getting to us a few of you. (laughs) It doesn't uh, sometimes help with the difficult work we have to do here together to have the weather be like it has been these past days. Rain is one thing, but having some coldness with it as well, when everything else is taken away, (laughs) it 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 can make it more difficult for some people. It somewhat requires us to find, maybe it requires us to find the sun within, that light within, so that we're not so dependent on whether the sun is shining or not, or doesn't matter so much what the weather's like. In a way, it makes, the weather makes the task a bit more difficult, I would think. Because when, the, when it's very beautiful and warm outside, I know for myself that it becomes a kind of refuge. I can just go out and sit in the sun. <laughs> and just sitting there and doing nothing in the sun is, is a wonderful thing <laughs> to do. <laughs> it somehow makes it more worthwhile to just be sitting. I taught a retreat here a few weeks ago for five days, and the weather was gorgeous. <laughs> We had beautiful sun and warmth every day, and it definitely added a certain joy to the retreat for us. But it has, with the, with, with the weather like this, it does add another element of, in a way, of renunciation, of another thing we have to let go of, another thing that we're not actually able to depend on. So, this, so, so it, it makes the situation here even more ascetic in some way. We're even more left with ourselves. So we're left with needing to find that inner source of light and warmth and radiance so that we really can be content no matter what's happening. You find a, find a way of being content with any condition at all so that we aren't so much relying on these outside sources of stimulation in whatever form they come in, whether it's through talking and relating together, even seeing a happy face, seeing somebody laugh, having a few words of exchange, some good food, sitting by a warm fire, being with one you love. I mean, these are usual things that we have in our lives that aren't that hard to come by. But here, it's taken away just for this time. So we really are left with ourselves. 
We're left just with ourselves, relying on our own resources. Our resources for happiness, for light and warmth to give ourselves. But we do find that this can be difficult. One question the Buddha said never to ask, because if we ask it and try to find the answer, we might go mad. And that's the question of how did this delusion that we live in begin? How did the ego gain its control? How did we get in this predicament (laughs) with this idea of self seeming to be so solid? He said, you'll never find the answer, so don't even bother asking. It'll just make you go mad. So that's not really the question that we want to ask, but more, here we are in this predicament of often depending on other resources for our happiness. The self doesn't seem to be so able to provide the joy, the needs, the sense of I seems to be so solid. It seems that from an early age, just early being a a little child, I remember as being old enough to speak, I was already trying to define myself, to find out how I should be or who I am, who I am in the world. I mean, there was a kind of expectation to know who I am, how I'm going to be, to have some kind of identity. But I wasn't taught how to find out who I am. I wasn't given any tools for self-discovery. I was just told, well, you should know who you are, have some sense of strength and identity as you go through through your life. And since nobody really taught me how to gain this sense of identity, of strength, I had to rely on others to tell me how I should be or who I was. I didn't know, I didn't know where to look. It seemed that other people had a kind of identity, so I wanted an identity. And so in relying on other people, I would listen to people like my brother, my big brother, and he would, he would say to me, in order to be a really special and popular person, you have to have something special about your personality. You know, you have to really look attractive. You know, probably if you had blonde hair, you know, you would probably be a lot more happy. You'd be, you'd be, you'd feel, you'd feel better about yourself. You'd have a, a good sense of your identity. <laughs> and I just really didn't know where to go for this information on, on who I am or how to be in the world. And I always wanted to be what other people expected to me to be, how other people wanted me to act. Because then if I was being the way they wanted me to be, then I was more accepted. I was, I was more well-liked, and then I'd feel more ease within myself. 
But then I found that when I actually did want to express my thoughts and feelings, and I wanted to express something that felt like my inner truth, either to my parents or my teachers, then I would get reprimanded or scolded or put down and told I was wrong and don't you speak up and you stay in your place. So it seemed that even when I would try to make myself acceptable, that didn't really work very much of the time. And then when I tried to speak my own truth, that didn't work. And there really didn't seem to be much much to, much to do to find peace within myself. It seemed that everybody had different ideas about what they wanted from me, and it seemed to depend on how they needed me to be for their sense of peace. If I was the way they wanted to, me to be, then they would feel more peaceful. <laughs> and yet I kept trying to mold myself. And there were many conflicting voices. Do this, don't do that. But I want this, but you can't have that. You don't deserve that. You should have this. You know, all these people telling me what to do all the time. So it seemed that then these voices became internalized, and I actually couldn't trust the voices in my head either. So I couldn't trust the voices outwardly, and I couldn't trust the voices inwardly. So it seemed like there wasn't any place to trust at all, that I lost a center of trust, I lost a, a, a core of being. <clears throat> and then there would be confusion and frustration and then a feeling of insecurity and a lack of trust. And then this would become evidence that I really was a terrible person and it would just be turned in on myself. And then there would be feelings of self-hatred and, and self-worthlessness. And it just became to be a circle. There was no way to get out of it. When that happens, then there's very strong patterns of self-hatred, self-defeating patterns that just then can turn in on oneself. And there can't, there can, it can be difficult to find any way out at all because the patterns are so strong. The patterns are operating so strongly. And I think this is really the point at which people do turn towards some um, spiritual guidance. Or, if they don't, they continue to live quite miserable lives. Or even maybe mediocre lives, very compromising kind of lives. But it seems that some kind of spiritual some kind of spiritual journey does begin to give people some hope, some light in the darkness. It's usually a journey to establish some kind of trust, establish that sense of trust that has been lost, to find some, some center for this trust. It's certainly not a journey to gain another self-image, because it's really seeing that the self-image is the problem. This collection and ideas and beliefs about how to be or who I am or what to, how to be in this world, that, that is actually the problem, this sense of self, this ego identification. The spiritual journey begins to help us see the truth of who we are, which is beyond the self-image, 
Yet, sometimes when we sit and look, this sense of self can seem quite solid. But we can begin to have little glimpses into it. In this teaching, all phenomenon has three characteristics. One is the said to be dukkha, the unsatisfactory nature of things. Because when we try to hold on to something, when we try to make something stay, when we try to fix something, it, it dissolves. We it disappears. We can't grasp anything. Everything's changing all the time. This is very unsatisfactory. So one of the characteristics is dukkha, unsatisfactoriness. And because we can't hold on to it, we see its impermanent nature. And this is the second characteristic, that, that one of anicca, impermanence. And the third is that of no self. We see that, that there's, it seems to be empty. We grasp it. We can't, we can't get anything. It doesn't seem to have any, any substance, any solidity to it. It has no individual self-existence. So it has these three characteristics of being unsatisfactory, being impermanent, and being empty, empty of self, empty of self-existence. So we say, while you're sitting here and you look at the arising and the passing of phenomenon, we say, See the impersonal, changing nature of things. Right now, see the impersonal, changing nature of things. See the emptiness. See the, see the, the changing quality, the impermanence. See that we can't hold on, that it's unsatisfactory. So it's not that this sense of self is real now, and then somewhere along the way, it becomes empty. It's empty now. It's an illusion now. It's transparent now. So we say, see the appearance of this self. See what makes up the appearance of this self, but yet see the truth of it. See the reality of it. See that there, it's, there's nothing to grasp in the sense of self. It's phantom-like. So if this sense of, if this self is is actually not solid, not real, not individual right now, not somewhere down down the way, then what is all this? What is what is this passing show that we see? What what is this? that appears in my so-called mind and body and feelings and thoughts and sensations and images and what, 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 how can I hold that if it's not me, if it's not mine, if it's not self? So what is this passing show that we're witnessing here together? These are the forces of conditioning based on past experiences, things that have happened to us in the past. They're called 
vasanas, patterns, tendencies from past. And these are what are playing out, these conditioned forces. And it's often said that what, make, what these conditions make up are, is called the lila, the play, the play of things, the unfolding of these conditions. One teacher said to me that these conditions arise from millions of years of latent desires burning out. There's millions of years of these latent desires burning out, just burning out right now. And if we're not giving them any fuel, then they can just burn out rather than us rekindling the fire constantly. But what is the fuel? What is the fuel? The fuel is controlling, thinking about how we want to be, ideas, images, beliefs about how we should be, what we want to have happen, ways to build up the self. That's the fuel for keeping the fires burning. So we want to stop feeding these patterns, stop giving fuel to these patterns. So we say, move the attention away from the thoughts, away from the thinking. Stop feeding these patterns of anger and fear and grasping and aversion. Because what's important are not the conditions, not the patterns, not the show. What's important is the, to find out who the owner of these conditions are. Who is the owner of this? Is it really self? Is it ego? Or is it empty? Is it just empty phenomenon rolling by? Like waves floating on the ocean. The waves are rising and falling. We can't really stop the show. We can't stop the show. Even in an enlightened state, in a realized state, the show doesn't stop. It's just that one sees the truth of what's running the show. It's the idea of the one who is running the show that changes but not the show. The show keeps going. There's no way out of it. (laughs) As long as we're in this human body, the conditions are going to play out. We've got a ticket to the theater. (laughs) So we need to find out who the director is. Who's the screenwriter of the show?
because when we can know that, when we can sense that, when we get a glimpse of that, then we can feel some trust, some faith in this unfolding process. We can know this trust, we can live this faith in the occurring of these conditions. Because everything that happens, happens for a reason. Everything, there is such perfect order and harmony in the universe that nothing is out of place. Everything is in complete order and perfection in every moment. Even though it can seem like everything's meaningless and pointless and empty, it's completely in order and purposeful and perfect. On days like this, I'm sure it's difficult to feel that. <laughs> I want to read you a short story of about a, a woman who has lost her vision, and it brings out this sense of the perfection of things. When I lost my vision, I had been very self-sufficient and together. I was raising five children. I was working. I was volunteering in my community. I was independent enough to be contemplating a divorce from a bad marriage. I'd even given an attorney $500 just before I had to go into the hospital. I'd begun to find myself knocking things over and stumbling around. I went to an ophthalmologist, then a neurologist, a neurologist, then a radiologist, then a neurosurgeon. And finally a doctor said, you have a growth in your brain. If you don't have surgery, it will continue to go and it will take your life, just like that. The operation took seven and a half hours. The doctor said he almost lost me twice. He'd removed a, a tumor the size of a hen's egg. All I could see was the faintest bit of light. It didn't hit me until I got home. I didn't recognize myself. I went into the hospital with long hair. I came out with short. I went in at 145 pounds. I came out at 175 wearing my mother's dress. I went in and could see. I left and couldn't. It wasn't me, and things were bad at home. I couldn't get a divorce now. I was too dependent. I tried to do things for myself, but it often just created more trouble. My youngest daughter didn't want to be seen on the street with me. She was ashamed. I felt so bitter, but I kept pushing my feelings away. What had happened? Why me? I just wanted out of there. One nice fall day, I told my husband I was going out. I went down the elevator and out of the house. I got to the corner and just stopped. I stood there, expecting any minute he'd come down and join me. He never came. I just stood there on the corner. A lot happened on that corner. I saw my past life. I recalled how lonely and helpless I'd felt as a little girl. And there I was now, just like a child again, only with five of my own. I stayed there a long time. Finally, I said to myself, well, here you are, and there's no place to go. 
It's time you brought a little help into your life. So I went into rehabilitation, and I told them everything I felt. I gave them everything. I gave them my shame and my anger and my fear. I felt it was the truth. And if it was the truth, then how could I be helpless? You don't suffer from the truth. The truth sets you free. Of course it was hard work coming to terms with change, but after a while you have nothing left to hide. You want to bring it all out. You want to make room to receive help. And when you're with a lot of people who are also trying to do that, you get a lot of support. Us blind folks working together, the more I felt that, the more I found myself beginning to offer help as much as ask for it. I met a young man there who was blind from birth. He'd never had a birthday party, so I baked him a cake and organized a party. He blew out the candles he couldn't see. He was delirious with joy. It was grand. I felt so happy. I had come from that lost blind person on the corner to someone who had, who had seen a need and done something about it. I've told people something that sounds a little cruel. Everyone should experience temporary blindness to see how our vision can give us such hang-ups, how we judge and condemn, and, and what that does to all of us. Like that boy with the birthday cake, there was a blind girl he had fallen for. Then someone said she was unattractive. He stopped seeing her. It brought tears to my eyes. He'd been seeing fine. But when you begin to see with that inner eye, that inner eye, ha that inner eye everyone has, it all changes. Everyone is human. Everyone is God's child. Everyone is helpless one way or another, and everyone is helpful too. We're all here for each other. That's how it is. And we all have something to give, no matter what our condition. So now when I work with the handicapped people, or anyone really, I find I have a special understanding to share. That's really all I have to offer. It's hard to put it into words. It's just, I understand, that's all. And yet, as sure or secure as that may sound, I don't think you are ever really secure. What is security? You can lose it in a flash. I know. So that sense of things seeming to be so miserable, so terrible, and what good can come from it. How it can really just open our hearts, both to ourselves and to other people. So we can't really know in the middle of it what's really going on. We can't evaluate ourselves or our lives in the middle of it. It's too soon. All we really can have is that faith or that trust in the unfolding, in the perfection of things, in knowing that it's okay, we're okay, that this is all happening for some reason. During the, a really difficult period for me, after I had been doing meditation for a while, 
I was using the metta meditation quite a lot in my daily life because I could see these patterns that had developed which were really turning in on myself, how I had really quite a lot of self-judgment and self-criticism and quite a lot of dark periods. And I was using the metta meditation quite a lot and sending love to myself and really feeling deeply how much I cared for myself, how much I really wanted to come to peace, how much I really wanted to be happy. And I would tell myself, I would just keep sending that back to myself, may I be happy, may I be peaceful, may I be free of this pain, may I be free of the suffering. And I would really connect with it, I would really feel it deep in my heart. And it had such a power that it just overshadowed these, these patterns of, of, of self-hatred. And I'd worked with this and worked with this for a long, long time. And finally the sun, the light, the warmth started to shine through because these patterns did not have such a strong hold anymore. That this, this light, this, this source became stronger than the patterns themselves. One time during this period I went to see um, a cinema, a film with, with my partner at the time. And um, it was just a film, we were just going out for the night just to, to see a movie. The name of the movie was uh, das, Bo- das, Bo- das Boat in German. <laughs> Excuse my <laughs> The Boat. <laughs> German movie, Das Boot. <laughs> I knew I was going to get in trouble. <laughs> Anyhow, yeah, I thought you'd also know what I meant. <laughs> so I was just going to this film and I uh, didn't know what I, was, what I was getting into at all. And it was a movie about um, some men who were on a submarine and they had gotten trapped in the submarine, and it was a film about them, the, the horror, the, the tragedy of, of them in this submarine under the water. Well, my father died in a submarine before I was born, and here I was watching this film with my eyes wide open, <laughs> not truly believing that I was sitting in this chair watching this film, it was, the, 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 the story was so realistic and so tragic of what these men were going through trapped in this submarine under the water. And I, I couldn't watch it. And I sat there and the tears just started to come. And I haven't actually thought that much about my father because I never met him, I didn't know him. And the tears just started to come. And I laid my head down on my partner's shoulder and I just sobbed and sobbed and sobbed and cried. It must have gone on 15, 20 minutes, just sobbing and sobbing. And there was no pain in it. There was no pain in that deep, deep grief, that deep, deep sadness. It was just light. It was just what needed to be released. And I just sat there crying and crying and feeling my heart. 
And there was so much space and so much light in this experience. At the same time, incredible grief that I had never felt before in my life. And I just let it go. There was no resistance to it. There was no making any real meaning out of it in terms of, oh, I'm sitting in a movie, I shouldn't be doing this. I just let it go. I knew that I had to feel it. And it was one of the most beautiful experiences in my life. Had I been in a different frame of mind, thinking that it wasn't appropriate or there was something wrong or this was going to be too painful or making all kinds of ideas around it, I may have just shut it off. I may not have let myself feel it. But because I had allowed the space for love to come in, this is what was touched. There's no no reason to stop these flows of feeling, these deep, deep expressions of these patterns from our conditioning. They must be experienced. They must be released. That's what this life is about. That's what we're in these human bodies for, is to let this purification happen. That is this, that is life. That is what life is. It's the expression of these forces. These conditions are burning out. We need to let the burning happen. We need to let the fire burn so it can just burn out. So the fire will no longer be there. If we stop controlling, stop trying to manipulate the conditions, stop trying to to bring in these ideas, these images, these beliefs about what we want to have happen, when we let this just happen, what that is is love. What's left is the love. When we're not controlling, what's there is love. And it's the love that is there in this unknown when we don't know. We were talking about this yesterday, last night. When we let go of the known, of the thoughts, of the images, what's left is this love in the unknown. Or we could call it compassion, or we can call it acceptance, or any, any of these words all are the same, really. We can't cultivate love, compassion, acceptance. It just comes from wisdom. It comes from true seeing of what's there. Seeing the folly of control. Seeing the silliness of the game. That brings the wisdom, that brings the insight. And then we stop. It's like we, we, we finally see we're holding a burning coal. When you're holding a burning coal, you drop it. <laughs> you don't just keep holding the burning coal. <clears throat> when the controlling goes, the fear goes. And when the fear goes, what's left is the love. 
Love is what's left when we let go of fear. Love's what's there when the self is absent. It's not just another quality of self. We can't just start being a loving person and then we're a better person or have a better self-image. That's not love. Love is what's there when the self is not there. Sometimes it's called emptiness. But I think emptiness gets confused because we think of voidness. We think of a vacuum. But emptiness is really the same as fullness. It's not emptiness as opposed to fullness. They're not opposites, but they're both. It's emptiness that contains the fullness. There can't be fullness if there wasn't space for the fullness to come in. And in that fullness is the love. Is all of this, all of these conditions, the sights and the sounds and the smells, the tastes, the wind and the forms and the shapes and the birds, that's in the space of emptiness. The fullness that is love is all-embracing, all-accommodating, all-accepting. Nothing is pushed out of the space. Love allows everything to be there. It's only an idea that forms in the mind, some I thought that then is identified with that thinks it knows better what should be here and what should be there, how things should be, the order of things. That I thought that doesn't trust this perfection, this harmony, this order. Sometimes after an opening, which I know a number of you have had here, sometimes after this kind of opening when you do feel more love for yourself and therefore more love for others, you're not judging yourself so much anymore and therefore you're not judging others because whatever is happening inwardly is also happening outwardly. There is a sense of feeling stronger. There's a sense of feeling warmer, lighter, more joyful, stronger. And really what this means then is, in a way, you are ready for another step. So, so things may start getting difficult again. And sometimes we interpret this difficulty as, uh-oh, I've lost something. It's gone. I didn't get it right. I blew it. But in fact, it means it's actually a sign of strength. It means that we are now ready for something that we, could, we were not ready for before because we're stronger now. So it's a sign of strength, not a sign of weakness or a sign of loss. <coughs> Nothing comes before we're ready. <coughs> Nothing comes before we're ready, and this is the trust. Just like in the cinema when I was watching the film, that only could have happened in that moment because I was ready to receive it. I was ready to be with the depth of that grief where I couldn't have been in it before, before I had done the love 
the loving kindness and the metta with myself and other people. So we have to really trust in this unfolding process. Trust, it's the same as love. That unconditional love, the love which is not dependent on any conditions, being any particular way, which can be tasted by the silent, compassionate witness of things that we all know that part of us that is just silent and compassionate in the face of whatever is happening at any moment the more that this is contacted with the more that this becomes familiar the more that this silent witness becomes known this, beca- this is our power source This is the power source to transform these tendencies. It actually accelerates the process because there's no more fuel being put on fire through ego. It's the witness who sees the truth of ego that sees that it really is just an illusion, that it's empty. This awareness, this unconditional love, this witness it does not take anything as I it does not claim any responsibility for anything that happens it doesn't believe the story it doesn't believe the thoughts it doesn't take claim because it knows the truth that there's something else going on (laughs) that is not in ego's control It's a short poem. God, whose love and joy are present everywhere, can't come to visit you unless you aren't there. Get it? (laughs) You had to go, you had to catch it quickly. I'll read it again. God, whose love and joy are present everywhere, can't come to visit you unless you aren't there. I'd like to end with this poem called The Empty Boat. I believe this was written by Thomas Merton, a great Christian mystic. It's written in he language, and um, it's easier just to say he rather than saying he and she. Um, oh, I could change to she, but you know, it's all just wanted to comp- just make sure that you knew that I was aware of that. <laughs> if a man is crossing a river and an empty boat collides with his own skiff, Even though he be a bad-tempered man, he will not become very angry. But if he sees a man in the boat, he will shout at him to steer clear. 
If the shout is not heard, he will shout again and yet again and begin, begin cursing, and all because there's somebody in the boat. Yet if the boat were empty, he would not be shouting and he would not be getting angry. If you can empty your own boat crossing the river of the world, no one will oppose you. No one will seek to harm you. The straight tree is the first to be cut down. The spring of clear water is the first to be drained dry. If you wish to improve your wisdom in order to shame the ignorant, or to cultivate your character in order to outshine the others, a light will shine around you as if you had swallowed the sun and the moon and you will not avoid calamity. A wise person has said, one who is self-satisfied has done a worthless work. Achievement is the beginning of failure. Fame is the beginning of disgrace. Who can free themselves from achievement and from fame, descend and be lost amid the masses of people? That person will flow like the Tao, unseen, he or she will go about life itself with no name and no home. Simple is the one without distinction. To all appearances, he or she is a fool. Their steps leave no trace. They have no power. They achieve nothing, have no reputation. Since they judge no one, no one judges them. Such is the free one their boat is empty. <coughs> so let's see if we can keep our boat empty <laughs> as we go through these next days together. Let's sit together for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.